On the morning of May 1st, 1943, at the height of the Second World War, a fisherman on a beach in Spain discovered a waterlogged corpse that had washed ashore during the night. The dead man was clothed in a British military uniform and a life jacket, and he had a briefcase chained to his lifeless body. As the soldier appeared to be the casualty of an airplane or an accident at sea, the body was transported to the local port, where its discovery was reported to Nazi officials stationed in the city of Huelva. Now, if you know your history, you'll know that Spain was technically a neutral country in World War II. But everyone knew that Spain was sympathetic to the Nazi cause. Spanish officials, when they picked up this body, quietly informed German military intelligence who came and identified the corpse as Major William Martin of the Royal British Marines. Germans then managed to secretly photograph and carefully examine all of the documents on his person before quickly returning the body to the Spanish, who returned Major Martin's remains back to the British, who expressed great concern about the sensitive documents that Major Martin was carrying to the Spanish government. The photographs the Germans took of Major Martin's papers were rushed then to Berlin for analysis. And after examining them, the German military and their military intelligence decided that they were indeed authentic. The contents of these papers led the Nazis to believe that the Allies would launch an invasion of Europe through the country of Greece. Hitler himself took this intelligence and ordered tank divisions and army divisions to Greece to be ready to receive the massive Allied attack. But again, if you know your history... That attack never came because Major Martin never existed. There was no Major Martin in the British Royal Marines. Instead, the corpse of a man who had died of natural causes was dressed up in a uniform by British military intelligence and released off the coast of Spain with false documents intended to deceive the Germans. The deception was called Operation Mincemeat. No detail was left out in the preparations. In addition to those military documents which spoke of an invasion of Greece, Major Martin was carrying letters from his fiancée, Pam, as well as ticket stubs to a theater in London. The deception was designed to be completely and totally believable. And the Nazis took it, hook line and sinker. It was all this additional information that helped to deceive the Germans into believing that Major Martin's documents were real. The Germans saw this as an intelligence coup. They knew the plans of the Allies. But they were incredibly deceived. The truth is, as history has later revealed, not a single German spy in England during the war was authentic. 
all the German spies in England were captured and turned into double agents who were controlled by the Allied High Command to carefully manufacture false reports to send back to Berlin. So all this information was designed to deceive. The Germans were at a serious disadvantage. They did not know the big picture, even though they really thought they did. And this serious error contributed to their ultimate defeat. The Allies were able to mislead them to such an extent that the Germans were unprepared for both the invasion of Sicily in September of 1943, as well as the invasion of Normandy, D-Day, in June of 1944. Now, why do we start with this illustration? Well, I think in our modern society, it is easy for us to be equally deceived that we understand the big picture when we look at the world around us. We think we know how the world works. And it is easy to become depressed about how wicked people seem to be the most powerful, influential, and carefree. How we, as Christians, struggle to get through our lives and raise our families. Everywhere we look, it seems as though sin is triumphing. We see wicked men get away with murder. We see influential politicians and businessmen lie, cheat, and steal, and then get elected. Yes, it's true, some people get caught, but most, most seem to get away with it. It's not just the powerful people in the powerful offices that get away with it. We see it in our friends, our family, and our neighbors. How many times do people cheat on their taxes? Or how many times does a contractor offer us a cash deal just to avoid their legal duty to report their true earnings and pay taxes to the government? We see husbands cheat on wives, and wives cheat on husbands. The liars and the cheaters, they get the jobs, they seem to get the money, while people who pay their taxes and act honestly get punished for their honesty. They pay more in taxes. And the temptation for us as Christians is to think if you can't beat them, why not just join them in their sin? And sometimes we can become resentful of our Christianity. We see it as just a barrier to our earthly satisfaction. Our earthly pleasure. Now, were this a purely naturalistic universe, this mentality would actually make great sense. But, the fact is, living your life based only on what you see, smell, taste, touch, and feel is living with a very incomplete picture of the world. It is true that if this is all there is in the world, if there is no supernatural, if Jesus was not raised for the dead, the Apostle Paul says, and Christians are to be most pitied. Why? Because we've denied ourselves so much on the basis of that supernatural resurrection. But he has been. This is not a naturalistic 
world. This is not just a physical world. It is a spiritual world. It is supernaturally created and supernaturally sustained. Real life extends far beyond just this physical world. We have souls that God has given to us that are eternal. And we will give an account to him. God is present and active. As we said this morning from Hebrews 9 verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that come the judgment. That is the reality. The psalm before us this evening, Psalm 73, warns us of living, the danger of living a life just in the moment. It warns us the problem of living according to our senses, what we can see, what we can hear, what we can taste, what we can touch, and what we can smell. If that's all that we are taking in, if that's all we're speaking to ourselves, we are all in danger of being deceived. That the world around us is all there is in life. And this faulty thinking leads to judgments made on bad intelligence that will lead to ultimate defeat and ultimate destruction in our lives. We are tempted to envy that which is perishing, that which is fading, the empty sinful lives of our friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, society. Like Esau, we are tempted to give up all our birthright and family privileges for a bowl of stew that is quickly consumed and gone. Psalm 73 here is a very important psalm for us, for helping us to gain an eternal perspective on our life and our mission in this contemporary world. As a church, beginning out, and as individual Christians. It's a very realistic psalm. This is one of the things I love about the scriptures. It doesn't pull punches. It speaks to the reality of our existence. And one of the realities of our existence is the struggle to believe while evil prospers around us. The Bible does not hide the struggles of this life. It confronts them head on and provides practical help for our spiritual needs. This is a psalm that is worthy of our attention. It's worthy to meditate on, to memorize, and to come back to. Because it helps us to regain a proper perspective. The full intelligence that God has laid out to us in His Word. So that we can endure the difficulties in our lives as we see wicked people prosper around us. While we face struggle and hardship. It helps us to better understand the dangers and blindness of our own hearts. And our own sin. And and it reveals the idols in our hearts. And it exposes our need for worship. Why are we here on a Sunday night in Barbados? Why are we participating in the body of Christ? This psalm helps us. It also provides a glimpse of the big picture. Just enough to reorient our hearts and our lives, to fix our hearts on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. We're going to examine this psalm this evening under three headings. First, the blindness of sinful envy. Second, The psalmist's turning point. And third, 
true vision restored. Well, let's begin and look first this blindness of sinful envy that we see here in these first verses. What we see in this psalm is Asaph, one of the temple musicians, one of the sons of Korah, the brother of Heman, expressing his own personal struggle with a sin that is all around him. Asaph sees that the wicked thrive, while many apparently good and innocent people suffer. Many of the lament psalms, as well as the book of Job and much of Jeremiah, are caught up in anguished questions of why God seems to allow evil, injustice, and unfair suffering to happen. Asaph here is wrestling with severe doubts and anger about the world. And again, the Bible does not try and sugarcoat this life. It is very realistic. The Bible does not promise that our life will be fair. But it does help us to confront our doubts and our anger. We need to understand that it is not wrong for us to be perplexed about our society. To be perplexed about the wickedness of man. But the first thing that we need to understand is that this psalm is a journey. The first thing we need to understand, this psalm was written after Asaph had conquered his doubts. This is a reflection on his doubts. Because the whole key to the whole verse, to the whole psalm is found in this first verse. Truly, God is good. God is good. And what we see in the rest of the psalm is how God revealed his goodness to Asa. The second concept that we see introduced here is to those who are pure in heart. And this communicates and sets the tone for the rest of the psalm. God's big picture focus is not on the circumstances that we experience. His greatest concern is what is our heart attitude as we endure those circumstances? What does our reaction to our circumstances reveal about what's going on in our hearts? As the Bible says elsewhere, out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouth speaks. In other words, when we're squeezed by the hardships of life, what comes out of us? There's an inevitability about our spiritual state. When we are pressed, eventually our true spiritual state will be revealed. The diet of young children can be interesting. I have four. I have a two-year-old now. And I can say that children left to their own devices will often eat without discrimination. If they are hungry, they will eat whatever is available. I have to confess that I don't know everything that my children eat. My youngest daughter, when she was a toddler, liked to dive into our garbage when we were not looking and eat it. So you might wonder, how do we know what she's been eating? Well, we do change her diapers and we do find some very interesting things in her diaper. We revealed all kinds of things. Let me ask you this. What does your spiritual diet 
reveal about you? Do you show purity or contamination? Why do you complain about your circumstances if you're not pursuing a good spiritual diet? Garbage in, garbage out. Asaph here is showing his own struggle. Verse 2, this is personal. He says, but as for me, he said, first of all, God is good. Those are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost struggled. He openly confesses that he had the wrong focus. Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity for the wicked. Asaph is consumed with envy of the wicked. Why? Well, the main reason here is that he's living for the temporal world. He is living in the moment. And isn't that really the motto that we see in the world? The Bible even describes it. Eat, drink, and be married, for tomorrow we die. Isn't that the sort of hedonistic lifestyle that we see? Even as, we see, as, even as you see tourists come to the island, they come for a good time. They eat and drink themselves silly till they throw up. They're looking for nothing more than the empty pleasures of this world. And this is how the world lives. I had a conversation with someone not too long ago who described themselves exactly this way. And they saw no other reason to live life otherwise. Why not? Live in the moment. And Asaph here is tempted. He has committed a fundamental error. He has lost his focus. And he's beginning to live for created things and not for the Creator. All Asaph sees in these first verses is prosperity for the wicked. What does it look like? Well, verse 4. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Verse 5. They seem to live without any difficulty or limitations. They seem to have a freedom of choice. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Verse 6. They are proud and arrogant, abusing their power over others. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garden. They are self-centered. Verse 7. Their eyes swell out it through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. And they speak. What do they say? Verse 8 9. They, they, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth. And you'd think these are repulsive people. But no. What does Asaph say? Asaph say. Verse 10. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. How is it that these wicked people seem to prosper? And indeed, they make money without effort. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Even though they are evil, they are prosperous. But what ties these things together? All of these things that Asaph is focusing on. The wealth, the health, the prosperity. All of these things are created things. He is focused on the circumstances of life. He sees the ease that others live around him. 
But these people are living in ignorance. They are not focused on the Creator. They are focused on that which He has created. And that is the fundamental error of the unbeliever. In fact, this is why God's wrath is poured out on humanity. Romans 1, verse 25 and 26 illuminates this. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, etc., etc. Asaph's sinful reasoning is leading to poor spiritual results in his own heart. We see these results in the psalm, don't we? Verse 3, what is the result of Asaph's focus? For I was envious of the arrogant, not good fruit. Verse 14, for all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Asaph is discouraged. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task. It's overwhelming. It's confusing. And in verse 21 and 22, it says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He was angry at God. Angry at God. Because he was focusing on others, on their circumstances. But the very words of Scripture tell us that this is the wrong focus. It's so tempting. It's so easy for us to fall into this. But Jesus instructs us in Matthew 6, 19-21. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your heart is focused on the things of this world, and your heart will not have the comfort and the encouragement and the blessing that comes as a child of God, you will give up your inheritance. Where are you at this evening in your life? Where is your focus tonight? Is what obsesses your mind the lack of material wealth or opportunity? I know it's not easy. I know that Barbados has experienced many financial challenges. And it's hard. But let me ask you, what kind of spiritual results do you see in your heart? How do you react when someone else that you know is successful? Do you truly rejoice in their success? Or are you just envious in your heart? We see the ultimate result there in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He wallows in self-pity. Right? Here we are. The depths of pathetic selfishness. 
worship and purity is worthless. You're wasting your time here. Why are you here worshiping God? He's saying, why am I doing this? What do I get out of it? Living holy is expensive. Right? And I don't mean that just in terms of the money given in worship to God. Money that could be used in other ways. It's expensive in that it, it costs us the opportunities to get ahead in life. It costs us relationships. It costs us time. It costs us energy and focus. Does your heart resonate with this? Do you wrestle with this? If I only had a little bit more scratch, if I only had a little bit more money, if I only had a little bit more time, do I really need to be with God's people? Why do you strive to live a holy and pure life? Now it's interesting. Sometimes when we pray out our hearts, when we really examine things, can be used by God to shock us. Asaph here in our psalm begins to realize that he's becoming what he is actually critical of in the world. Isn't that interesting? He begins to see his own selfish heart. He doesn't get it, but he, he, he gets something of the shock. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent, for all day long have I been stricken, stricken and rebuked every morning. Shocking statement. But it helps him to gain a toehold. Sometimes, when we're in the midst of throes of sin, we don't have an immediate turnaround. It isn't like all of a sudden a light turns on and we turn to God in repentance. Sometimes it happens incrementally. And this is what I believe happens with Asaph. He realizes the bile and the envy and the selfishness in his heart. He has some concept that that is shocking. And we know this because of the toehold he gains in verse 15. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph is a leader in the temple. He's one of the temple musicians. And he was wrestling with this privately. But he didn't display it publicly. Because he realized that it would have led others astray. And the toehold that he gains in the midst of this overwhelming, self-pitying, envying rant is that he begins to think about others. He, must, he realizes that he must not lead others astray. Your children. He remembers that he has family responsibilities. It's amazing when you are gifted with children by God, how it changes things. Before we had children, I was willing to take risks in my career. In 1999, I took part in a, in a dot-com that got started, and it would boomed and busted. And I was out of work. I was married, and I was concerned, but my wife was 
also working at the time. We had no children. But as soon as I had children in seminary, I realized everything's changed. I can't just take the risk. I have to ensure and protect my children. I have to be careful what I do because what I do has consequences for them. And that is a loving father. That's loving leadership. And Asaph remembers that he's adopted to a family and he does not want to become a stumbling block to those under his ministry. One of the things you may not realize is that the pastorate and your pastor bears many burdens. Some of them you know about, others you don't. And that's right and proper. But what that means is we need to pray for those who are in leadership. They need your prayers. We need your prayers. And we need opportunities to go before God. This toehold that Asaph gets is not enough. It is not really the point of turning. But it sets the stage for the dramatic turning point that we see in verses 16 and 17. So we've seen the sinful uh, rant, the focus that he has shown in these, early, uh, in these early verses up here until verse 16. We have seen how he has focused on the, the things of this world. But now we're going to see a shift and a change. Now, before I was married, I used to watch sports. I used to watch hockey. That was something, there's, there's a tradition in Canada called, uh, on Saturday night called Hockey Night in Canada. And my father and I would watch that when I was growing up. But after I got married and I got new responsibilities, my sports watching disappeared. But for a time, I still wanted to keep track with my teams, even though they terribly lose every season. And so I would be thankful for the recaps of the games. And in Canada, we have a uh, sports um, uh, channel called the Sports Network. And after every game or every uh, uh, sports, they would, they would issue these summaries. And in the summary, they would have the, the TSN turning point. And this was the key point in whatever sports game or whatever match when, when the momentum shifts and the, the, the home team comes back and wins the game. And they would, they would have this. It would be either a goal or it would be some sort of just, just a momentum shift in the game. And they, they would show that. And that was, that was like the highlight of the game. Verse 17 is Asaph's turning point. This is where we see his, his focus turning from inward to Godward. But when, verse 16, I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Two things happen in this turning point. Asaph goes to worship. Asaph goes to church. His heart is not right, but he goes to the right place to get his heart right. He goes to worship. 
And secondly, he remembers the temporary nature of created things and the eternal nature of God. Then I discerned their end. This is vital for us to see. We need to see that our time spent in worship, coming before God on the Lord's Day, morning and evening, is a means of God's grace to us. Let's be honest. Sometimes because of the circumstances and situation, we struggle. Sometimes we can't pray. Sometimes we struggle to get to God. We know that we need to get there, but we don't want to go there or we struggle. Just, there's a lot of muck in the world. There's a lot of sin. One of the ways I've described worship is, is having a weekly shower, coming and delighting in the truth, regaining that perspective. And that's why it's so important for us not to neglect the gathering together. It is the turning point for Asa, and it's a turning point for us. Hebrews 10 gives us a direct instruction on this. Hebrews 10, 25, and 26. We are not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, there is a blessing in coming together in the body of Christ. And that blessing may come through the preaching of the Word. It may come through the singing of the Word. Wasn't that a wonderful hymn we sang? He will hold me fast. Right? Simple truth, but glorious. It may come through a conversation after the sermon as a brother or sister encourages you. The corporate gathering, the corporate worship of God is a vital means of grace for the Christian. My question is, why would you neglect it? The Israelites themselves went twice on the Sabbath to the temple, morning and evening, to participate in the sacrifice. They sacrificed two lambs, one in the morning and one in the evening. They spent the day engaged in worship. Now, there is nothing in the New Testament that requires you to go to church twice on Sunday. But let me ask you a really simple question. If this is the place where God has promised to bless you, if the preaching of the word and the worship of God is a means of grace, why would you be anywhere else? What else could offer you what the word of God offers you? What, what, what more could be offered to you than the worship of God? What could be better or more important in your life. Do you see how vital worship was to the psalmist? It is here that his breakthrough comes in the worship service, not at home in front of his TV set or fireplace or whatever it was. It's in the body of Christ as we worship together in community. It is God's design for our good. And it's in worship that Asaph realizes the truth. The truth is he's not on the slippery slope. It's the unbeliever who's in danger of ruin. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall 
to ruin. How destroyed they are in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. This is reminiscent of the instruction in Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, where it says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Asaph gains perspective. He sees in verse 20 that the temporal world is like a dream. He says, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. We all know how vivid dreams can be. You know, sometimes when you wake up, have you ever had that, that horrible sinking feeling? When you wake up, and it's like, was that real? Maybe in your, in your dream, you committed some sin or did some horrible thing. You wake up, you think, is that real? For years, even still to today, I wake up oftentimes with this recurring dream that I have not studied for my French exam in university. And I have this sickening feeling when I wake up, I forgot. I've got to get to the university to write this exam. And I don't even know what to say. It's a horrible feeling. There's a vividness. But it's not him that awakes here. It is the Lord who will act. And he will despise the wicked. Sometimes we go around and sin just makes us stumble along in a stupor. But the word of God grounds us in the real woken reality. Right? We see this word now in our society. People are woke. Woke to what? Woke to what? Are they woke to the reality? No. If they were woken to the reality, they would be woken to their sinfulness and their need for God. The Lord is a God who acts. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantom. He despises the wicked. It's so easy for us to lose perspective, isn't it? I find it really interesting to consider what it would be like to be a disciple of Jesus. Here they are in the presence of the living God. And yet, they're constantly afraid. They have not been given the Spirit of God, it is true, but it is amazing to, to me to think. They, they see Jesus do these amazing miracles. In the Gospel of Mark, he uh, raises people from the dead, he heals the lame, he does amazing things. And yet, when there is a storm, they are afraid. Even though Jesus is sleeping, and they wake him up, and he rebukes the waves, and the storm stops on a dime, like an instant. Because there is more to this world than what we can see, taste, touch, smell, or feel. Because he is the living God. He's in supernatural control. And he rebukes his disciples in Mark 4.40. And he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And this is what we need to remind ourselves as we come into worship. Are we still afraid? Are we still envious? Do we have a real perspective on this? All that you see will pass away. 
all of those who are in power and who've gotten there through wickedness, who have cheated, all of those people who've gotten away with murder, literally. I know some people who have family members who have been murdered. And they know who did it. They are from a country where there is a lack of the rule of law. And even though everyone knows who did it, even though they know the brutal events, there is no justice. That's a hard thing to live with. And the temptation to go and to act on your own or the temptation to despair is real. But if we know that there is a supernatural God, if we know that there is a God who will bring judgment, and we can be still and know that He is God. Because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. We need to gain perspective. You see, the world around us is, as James says in James 4, verse 14, a temporary vapor. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. You see, this is why we come into worship. We come into worship to put the world, to put our world, to put our lives in perspective. We're not just living in a temporal world. We can't just think of things materially. We live in a material and a spiritual world. And worship helps us to see that. God reveals it to us through His Word. Well, we've seen the sinful envy of Asaph. We've seen the transformation that happens when he comes into the presence of God, when he worships God, we see this turning point. Thirdly and lastly, we see Asaph's vision rightly restored, seeing the world as it really is, natural and supernatural. Asaph here gains two things in his restored vision, as we do when we come to God and worship. He gets a proper perspective on himself as a person and a proper perspective on God. First of all, we see in verses 21 to 24 his new perspective on himself, on humanity. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. All of a sudden, Asaph realizes how truly foolish he has been. He sees how God has been patient and gracious with him. Notice the parallel that he makes here to the beast in verse 22. This is the difference between us and the animals. The higher critical thinking capacity. The spiritual thinking capacity. 
when we think about what we can see, taste, touch, and smell, we are no greater, no better than the beasts in our thinking. Right? They're only thinking about their circumstances, and they're only thinking about improving their circumstances. So they'll do whatever they, they can. You see the cats in the streets. They'll go into the garbage cans. They'll go into the muck in the mire. And then they'll come up to your leg and they'll purr. Right? Trying to manipulate and get their way in there. They're just concerned with the next meal. And when we do not have a biblical perspective on our lives, we become like this. But we are created in God's image. And so we have the ability to understand and reflect his character. And this is what connects us with the unbeliever. This is the the connection point with the unbeliever. Because all of us are created in the image of God. And even the unbelievers that that are pursuing a life of selfishness and envy and all of those things. They know that these things will pass away. Though they may deny it. Though they may spend Lots of money on anti-aging creams. We all know that our lives have a terminal point. And the reality is that we are created in the image of God. And we know that there is something more to this world. We may suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But we're created in the image of God. And so we cannot be content. And this is what we see in our society. People have more want more. I need another franchise. If I own all the chefettes on the island, I need another one. And another one. And another one. When is it enough? We're not satisfied unless we find our satisfaction in God. God has given us a moral law. God has created in us a sense of Him. And in verse 23, we have this this wonderful reminder. Nevertheless, one of the most beautiful words in this whole psalm. Nevertheless, despite Asaph's slide, God has sustained him. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. There's a security. There's a safety in holding someone's hand. As I've been here this week, I've really missed my children. But it's been really sweet because Wade and Max have embraced me. And they trust me. When we're crossing the road, they'll reach up their hand to hold Uncle Chris's hand. There's a safety that's there. There's a protection that's there. God holds our hand. He is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. Jesus promises that I will be with you even to the end. And he will be with you even when you slide into selfishness, when you slide into envy. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. God sustains Asa. And because of this, because of God's constancy, as he's reminded in worship, he is now able to reflect and think properly. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you'll receive me into your glory. What a wonderful perspective 
on life. No matter what our circumstances, God is there holding our hand. And when we die, He receives us into glory. Asaph has a better understanding of his situation. But he also gains a new perspective on God through worship. This, this whole thing drives him back to God. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Like Asaph saying, what more could I want? What more could you want? Asaph's portion is gone. That's his most treasured and important possession. Not the temporary wealth of relationships or the possessions of this world. You might not have much in this life to your name. But if you are a child of God, you are the richest and most wealthy that you could ever be because you have the riches and wealth of a God who created the universe. God is the center of our lives. And basically what we've seen here is that Asaph has moved from the idolatries of his heart the focus on the material wealth and relationships of this earth. He's moved from idolatry to worshiping the true God. He has had his eyesight adjusted. And when you gain a true vision of this world, when you see that all of this sin and this wickedness will come to an account, when you see what he sees there, in verse 17, when you discern the end of this world and the spoiling, perishing, and fading world that it is, you start to gain an appreciation of God's value, His beauty, and His satisfaction. That's where our satisfaction is found in God. God is our portion. My children, when we hand out dessert, slices of cake for dessert, a lot of the times they seem very inexact. But it's almost as if they have laser analysis vision to look at their portion and to compare it to the portion of their siblings. And they'll say, oh, she got a bigger portion than me. Isn't that how we look? Our envious hearts. But what God does is He readjusts our thinking. Our portion is God Himself. He has revealed Himself. And He is enough for everything and everybody and every one of our desires. When we gain this sense, we begin to value what is most important. We begin to realize what we have received in God. We begin to value Jesus. How did He calm the storm of life? How did He address the wickedness of this world? 
He did it by sacrificing His own life for me and for you if you believe and trust in Him this evening. You see, we need this big picture adjustment. We need to see things as they really are, not as we might think that they are, because we are fallible human beings and we have a very limited perspective. We only see what we can see, taste, touch, and smell. What we come to are in our own experience. We need to see properly, and we see properly when we enter into the worship of God. We see that God is really on His throne, that He is really sovereign, that He is really just, that He really is gracious. That if we're Christians this evening, that we're truly better than we deserve. C.J. Mahaney, the preacher in the States, that's what he does when people ask him, how are you? A lot of time we respond and we say, I'm fine. But one of the ways that he reminds himself of who he is, is his response is, I'm better than I deserve. I'm better than I deserve. Is that how you can respond this evening? Do you have that right perspective? Are you better than you deserve? Do you realize that your sins require a sacrifice that cannot be paid? Do you realize that God has provided you a Savior? Jesus Christ. Asaph concludes the psalm in verse 27 with this laser focus that he's now gained. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I still remember when I got my first pair of contact lenses. I don't wear them today. But... If you've worn glasses all your life and all of a sudden you get contact lenses, all of a sudden your peripheral vision, everything, it's like seeing in high definition. And this is what's happening with with Asaph here. He's seeing with high definition, truly, clearly, reminding himself, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. The wicked shall perish. And you, God, put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Those that I'm envying. Those that, 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 that draw my, my, my envy and, and my heart. What am I envying? They're going to die. They're going to perish. And they're going to face an eternity in hell for their wickedness. No. For me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge. That I may tell of all your works. The conclusion of Asaph, is it yours as well? Now, we don't know when this psalm was written, but I find a fitting sort of footnote to this is to turn forward a few chapters to another psalm written by the psalms by the sons of Korah. I like to think that this was written by Asaph. Verse 10 of Psalm 84, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk rightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Do you trust in the Lord this evening? Do you know His goodness and His grace? Then no matter what your circumstances, no matter what your relationships, no matter what your bank account, you are blessed. You are blessed. You have received the greatest and most valuable gift. And that will be your focus, your comfort, your strength, your refuge in the travails and challenges of life. Look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of faith. The chief end and purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And if you're not glorifying God and enjoying Him, then what are you doing? That's what He's called us to do. Look to Him. Amen.